In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hello, I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and welcome to the Voices of King, a 13-part podcast from the AJC. Originally recorded in 2008 for a short documentary, we sat down with 13 people who were close to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in life and in death. This podcast was originally released in 2018 to mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death. Now, as we move into a new era, we are revisiting these important interviews to give you a glimpse inside the making of history. We were proud to document these conversations then, and we are proud to present them to you today. He went on to defy those who sought to kill him. I'm not fearing any man. I ran to the car, what happened, what happened? And when I turn around, then I can see. All I was thinking about was, Lord, don't let him die. You know, don't let him die, don't let him die. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Memphis. I don't go back there. I've been there, but I haven't been there. There's nothing there that I want to remember, really. Why King? Why the Prince of Peace? That was going through my mind. This man, this one man, he taught us how to live, and he taught us how to die. The Voices of King, a podcast of 13 voices, 13 people who bore witness to the last days of the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as told to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ryan Horn. In the late evening of April 4, 1968, a 22-year-old Tyrone Brooks found himself racing to Memphis, Tennessee in a brand new white Thunderbird. He was determined to reach the city where Dr. King had just been murdered. The new president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Ralph David Abernathy, beckoned all members to Memphis in order to quickly strategize the next steps for the organization. Brooks arrived at 2 a.m. the next morning, and Memphis was burning. Fires in every direction, the National Guard was on every corner. He couldn't sleep that night. Brooks was still in shock that Dr. King, the Prince of Peace as he called him, was gone. Despite it all, He remembers Abernathy telling him the next morning that if we love Martin, we will commit ourselves to fulfilling his dream. By this time, there had already been violence break out in a number of American cities, most horribly in Washington, where there were like major fires and disturbances happening just blocks away from the Capitol and the White House. Former AJC reporter Jim Mahmoudi conducted the interview with Brooks in 2008. This stuff was breaking out all over the country, and nobody knew how much worse it was going to get. But we knew that there was going to be this big funeral in Atlanta. And Hosea Williams and the other SCLC leadership, they pulled together the young staffers like Tyrone and said, basically, this cannot happen in Atlanta. 
If there is violence in Atlanta at King's funeral, we are going to be blamed for it. The SCLC will be blamed for it. We have got to get out there in the community and make sure that doesn't happen. And, and they did. They very actively got out there with the, the network that they knew, the, the young folks in the neighborhoods and some of the even some of the gangs, and they talked to them. Uh, and in some cases where people were really angry uh, and wanted to do things, they, they talked them down. They basically said, no, you can't do this. There were some minor disturbances in Atlanta during those days, but for the most part, Atlanta did not burn. And 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 why did that happen? That happened. It happened somewhat because of the political leadership in Atlanta, because the police department was not as brutal as it was in some other places, although it certainly had aspects of that. But it also happened because the civil rights leadership here made sure that it didn't happen. They had they had a vested interest in it not happening, and they tried really hard to make sure the city stayed stayed at peace. With uh, where you were that night, that you were in this home, and, the, and mm-hmm. the, they came on the Huntley Brinkley report. Mm-hmm. Sitting in the home of Raph and Myrtle Ivy, watching NBC News, and Chet Huntley was anchoring NBC that evening. And he gave us a kind of a briefing that uh, he had a report that Dr. King had been shot in Memphis. And uh, sooner or later, we would get a full report from their correspondent. When, they, when NBC first switched to Memphis, as I recall, uh, the correspondent didn't have a whole lot of information. But later on, before sign-off, uh, Chet Hunter switched back to Memphis. And the correspondent was standing there and uh, trembling and uh, as I recall, and uh, tears flowing down his face, and he said, Dr. King was dead. And I was just sitting there stunned. I mean, I'm sitting in this home alone. No one is there. Mr. Mr. and Ms. Ivy were out, and uh, their little daughter, uh, Rhonda, was not there. And um, I just sat there, and maybe five minutes later, the phone rang, and it was Claudette Matthews, SCLC's receptionist, calling from SCLC's headquarters on Auburn Avenue here in Atlanta. And Claudette said, Tyrone, she said, all staff that are not in Memphis must report to Memphis tonight. She said, Dr. Abernathy is calling all staff to Memphis tonight. And she said, get back to Atlanta as soon as you can. We will all be going to Memphis tonight. I said, okay, Claudette. I remember uh, getting my little tote bag, uh, getting my little belongings together, and I remember going out of the door getting in this rental car that Jose Williams had assigned me. And I remember pulling out of their driveway in Social Circle, and I remember parking that car at 334 Auburn Avenue uh, at SCLC's headquarters. But I don't remember anything in between. It's like a blank. But when I parked the car and walked into the door, uh, Claudette was crying, and she said, how did you get here so quick? I just spoke to you. I said, I don't know, but I'm ready to go to Memphis. She said, you're in no position to drive anywhere. She said, Willie Bolin is on his way from Macon. Willie Bolin had just bought a brand new white Thunderbird. And she said, wait until Bolin arrives, because he wants you to ride with him. He and Gwen. So when they arrived from Macon, um, I was able to get in the car with them. I got in the car. I was very upset. I mean, I can't describe to you how upset I was. It's hard to describe in words. Uh, I was devastated. 
Uh, it seemed like all of my life had been just pulled out of me. I, I just can't describe it. But anyway, I got in the car, got on the back seat of this Thunderbird with, with, with Willie and Gwen, and uh, I didn't feel that he was driving fast enough. And I said, let me drive. And he said, okay. So he got on the back seat, and Gwen was over on the passenger side right next to me, and she was asleep. And I started driving this brand new, big, white Thunderbird, and it was like a big jet on the ground. It was so smooth and quiet. And every now and then, Bolin would wake up and he would touch me on the shoulder. He was a Tyrone, slow down, you're running 100 miles an hour. Slow down. I said, okay, okay. As soon as he went back to sleep, I'd float again. I'd get up 100, whatever. And it's ironic that I didn't see any law enforcement vehicles along the way. I didn't see any state patrol, no police. Well, we arrived in Memphis around 2 a.m. Have, have you ever thought about the irony that in all likelihood you passed James Earl Ray going the other way from Memphis to Atlanta, fleeing Memphis that night? That has been brought to my attention uh, several times. Um, it, it has crossed my mind that we probably did meet along the route. Uh, he coming this way to Atlanta in his little Mustang, and we're going that way in this big Thunderbird. Uh, over the years, uh, I've been told that we possibly did meet each other along that route. Uh, I remember arriving uh, in Memphis that morning around 2 a.m., and Memphis was burning. I mean, fires were everywhere. There were National Guard troops on every corner, standing at attention with their rifle, bayonet, and hard hats on. And um, I remember seeing so many young people out in the streets, um, and the guardsmen were standing on these corners, and they were basically trying to keep order, but there were so many young people moving around, just walking around, that it surprised me that uh, they weren't being arrested. And I guess the guard and the local authorities said, "Well, if you weren't if you weren't doing anything illegal, uh, you know, we, we we're not going to bother you." But I remember walking through these guardsmen, just walking around. I couldn't sleep. I could not go to sleep that night. I remember the next morning, Dr. Abernathy calling us all together and giving us a briefing um, on what had happened the day before at the Lorraine Motel, describing it as much as he could. Now, I remember Aretha Franklin singing. When we walked into this church uh, that morning, Aretha was just singing, and oh my gosh, she was singing. And her father, Reverend C.L. Franklin, came in, and he started preaching, trying to keep everyone calm. The church was jam-packed. And uh, people were crying, they were moaning, they were hurt. People were coming in from all around the world, it seemed, uh, just flying in, driving in, or whatever. This was a church in Memphis? Yes. Which church was this? Was this the Mason uh, hey, Temple the, where the, they been having the, the meetings? You know, Dr. King had spoken at Mason Temple AME the night before his assassination. Uh -huh. And if I'm not mistaken, the church that we were in the next day, if I'm not mistaken, it was Reverend Billy Kyle's church. I'm not absolutely certain about that. Probably. But I'm not certain about which church we were in. I do recall Dr. Abernathy calling us together, and all of the staff went in to this church. And uh, I could find out, but I, I just don't recall whether we were in Mason Temple or uh, whether we were in Reverend Billy Kyle. Reverend Billy Kyle's wife 
had prepared this big soul food dinner uh, for Dr. King and Abernathy and Jesse Jackson and Jose Williams and James Orange and Dorothy Cotton and all of them. And they were going to go eat at her at their home that evening that Dr. King was assassinated. But I was not in Memphis on the day of the assassination. So uh, we arrived the next morning at 2 a.m. And uh, then the next morning, the early on in the morning, and later on that morning, <clears throat> Dr. Abernathy began to pull us together and began to tell us that we had to carry on, that Martin was going on to glory. And uh, if we loved Martin, that we would be committed to fulfilling his dream. And he reminded us that Dr. King had preached his own eulogy many times. And he said, um, Martin would want us to just wipe off the tears, roll up our sleeves, recommit ourselves to the movement. We need to carry on. We have to focus on the Poor People's Campaign March on Washington. And uh, that was one of the major assignments that we would have that year. So um, it was a devastating time for me. Uh, I was so caught up in Dr. King and, and all that he represented. And I'm sure so many of the young people across the country were just me. It was so many. It seemed like the world was gravitating to the King's message of nonviolence and love and peace. And all of a sudden he's gone at the age of 39. And uh, many of us, you know, the younger generation at that time, we were so caught up in that that when we lost him, so much of the hope that he represented was kind of pulled away. And it was like a vacuum that pulled that hope out of so many of us. It's like, well, there's no way we can, we can proceed now. We've lost our leader. But Abernathy, as strong as he was, he said, uh, Martin knew this day was coming. He preached it over and over. And he talked about it in staff meetings. He talked about it at Ebenezer. He, he and Ralph, they, he said, he and, he and Martin and Ralph would talk about it in private, that he knew one day soon that he would be taken away from us. And so Dr. Abernathy reminded us of all this. He said, listen, Martin has preached his eulogy. You all have heard him over and over in staff meetings in Ebenezer and in sermons, so you should have been prepared for this. And he said, I might be next. And he said, if I go, then one of you are going to have to pick up and carry on. The movement cannot die, even though we all must die. The movement cannot die. So Dr. Abernathy gave us that strength and, and uh, was challenging us to refocus, to understand that we still had a lot of work to do, particularly carrying through with the Poor Babies Campaign. And, uh, and we uh, basically accepted that challenge from him. Had it not been for Dr. Abernathy, I think we would have just split, we would have disintegrated, we would have just fell apart. But he was so strong and so focused that he challenged us to remain together. And he said, Martin, he said, he called him Martin. He said, Martin's last words to me were, Ralph, promise me you will keep the team together. And he kept repeating that. He said, promise me you will keep the team together. And Dr. Abernathy said, I will, I'll do my best. When did you head back to Atlanta after going to Memphis? It was uh, maybe a couple of days later. We all came back, Bolin, Gwen, all of us came back. Carl Ferris, I think, came back with us. Carl Ferris had been one of my early mentors in SCLC. Carl 
was a first cousin of Isaac Farris, who's married to Miss Christine King Farris, Dr. King's only sister. And Carl and I had become very close because he'd done a lot of work in my hometown when I was a kid growing up. But Carl came out of the Congress of Racial Equality Corps. Uh, he was, came out of St. Louis, Missouri, and he gravitated to SCLC. And uh, he was one of those, uh, as Dr. Abernathy and Willie Bolin were, that kept trying to tell me that that the world wasn't ending, <laughs> that this was just a beginning for, for those of us who uh, had responsibilities uh, to carry on the movement. Um, they all were much, a few years older than me, but uh, they were like my big brothers, Carl Ferris, Willie Bolin, James Orange. Um, Dorothy Cotton was like a big sister. Uh, but um, we came back to Atlanta in a, a, few, a couple of days after going into Memphis. And I remember uh, coming back to the headquarters on Auburn. And I remember being with Jose. Jose was like my father in the movement, and he basically kept saying to me, Tyrone, you got to get over this. Uh, we have to refocus. Uh, that was a point after we came back from Memphis that I had this hatred for white people. Um, I had this, this awful hate, and uh, I remember one day we were driving, uh, I think I was driving Carl's car downtown Atlanta, and uh, Going, th going through downtown Atlanta, there were some white people in the crosswalk. And Carl thought that I had intentionally tried to hit them. And I said, no, they were walking and I had the light. And he said, well, he said, Tyrone, look, uh, I think you, you just need to calm down. You, 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 you're, very, you're still upset. And he said, you cannot carry this hatred in you. You've got to get over this. We understand you're hurt. But I said, no, Carl, you're mistaken. Uh, they called my mother in Warrington to tell my mother that, um, that I was going through these horrible changes. And she said, well, we understand. She said, uh, everybody else. She said, he'll be all right. Uh, it's going to take him a little time, but he'll be all right. And so after Hosea got me back on the road uh, and we started working, uh, I think Jose felt like the busier we were, the more we could get over this hurt and this anger that we were carrying. So he, Jose Williams kept us very busy. He kept us very, very busy. And, um, and we were doing a lot of organizing uh, around preparing for the March on Washington, the Poor People's Campaign, building Resurrection City between the Lincoln and Mar Washington monuments on the mall. Uh, so he, he worked us. He, he said if he worked us, he knew that we wouldn't have time to to, to moan and, 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 and uh, be, be wrapped up in the anger and the hurt and the disappointment in losing Dr. King. You were, you were telling me when we were talking on the phone about when you got back to Atlanta that uh, y'all were, uh, there was a lot of attention paid to making sure that the city didn't break out in violence like Correct. a lot of other cities were doing and you were telling me about going out with a group yes uh, I think it was to a place over on D&W yeah. uh, sandwich shop right tell, on the corner tell, tell of Hunter Street you, in Ashby tell, tell me about what y'all were doing why you were doing it and then tell me about that experience yes uh, Hosea had basically given us instructions that it was our responsibility to make sure that Atlanta did not engulf in violence and riots, as we'd seen in Detroit and Newark and Chicago and Washington and L.A. and Watts and Memphis. 
Hosea said, um, we cannot, as disciples of Dr. King, uh, through our nut action, allow for persons in our community here in Atlanta uh, to do what we have seen happen across America. He said, it's a self-defeating proposition because if they riot and they burn uh, in Dr. King's hometown, uh, we're going to be blamed. And it would be a tremendous blow against Dr. King's legacy for his hometown to burn up. I mean, he was a man of peace, a man of nonviolence. And for his hometown to burn, it would be a tremendous blow against his legacy and his teaching of nonviolence. So he said, we are disciples of King. We should go out into the community and preach nonviolence and urge the young people who are very hurt, very hot-headed right now, to remain calm. We received those orders from Hosea Williams, who was the field general, uh, as we call him. We call him the, the field general. He was the man that, that really had more control over the field staff than anybody in SCLC, and I mean nationally. So Hosea kept preaching that to us. You need to be in the community, whatever you hear. You need to try to, you know, you need to try to calm it down. You need to try to say to the young people, whether on the college campuses, over at AU, on Auburn Avenue, over in Summerhill, or Bottom, or Bottom, or Vine City, that there is no victory in violence. So we were out as ambassadors uh, preaching nonviolence and urging the community to remain calm. Over on Boulevard, I remember over on Boulevard uh, near, uh, near what used to be uh, Georgia Baptist Hospital, it's now called Atlanta Medical Center, but over there in that area, there was a lot of tension and police cars were constantly going up and down Boulevard uh, because there were fights, uh, white people who were driving through that corridor uh, through Boulevard going to Grant Park, rocks and bottles were thrown on their vehicles. Uh, so there was a lot of tension. We had to go up on Boulevard. But one evening, uh, James Orange and I and some other guys went over to the D&W Sandwich Shop. I think Carl Ferris was with us also. We went over to the D&W, which was a little white building on the corner. Uh, it was Hunter Street and Ashby then. It's now Martin Luther King and uh, Lowry, but it was a little, little, little sandwich shop that stayed open 24-7. It was called D&W. And we walked in, and um, there were some uh, young guys from SNCC in the place. And they were, you know, they were talking to Black Power and Burn Baby Burn, and, and uh, they recognized us from SCLC, and uh, there were some words exchanged, and... Uh, I remember Carl Ferris basically saying um, that, you know, we uh, were nonviolent warriors of Dr. King and we followed the teachings of Dr. King and, you know, the stick workers began to scream, you know, you Uncle Toms, you, uh, you follow that King and King is dead and pretty soon you all are going to be dead with that nonviolent teaching and you can't trust a white man and you need to get your guns and, and we basically said, listen, we are, we are from SCLC, we don't believe in violence, we, uh, we are true believers in the message of Dr. King and, uh, we came in to get some sandwiches tonight, but you're not going to provoke us into violence. They really wanted to provoke us that evening. And I remember James Orange, who was the biggest one in the group, basically stood up and he said, uh, leave my little brother alone. Uh, I was a very skinny guy. I had, I had no weight then. I was, all I had was a big afro. And I had my little dashiki on with, you know, uh, and, and uh, my little black power medallion around my neck. And uh, I remember... 
James Orange basically uh, calming the situation down and basically saying, yes, we do believe in nonviolence and uh, we're going to maintain uh, that commitment and we're going to work in this community and we're not going to let anybody provoke us uh, into violence. It's just not going to happen. And when he spoke with his booming voice, uh, basically the room got quiet. And, uh, and James Orange said, basically, uh, only cowards would resort to violence. And uh, that, that, that kind of diffused the tension in the air that evening over the DNF. So after a while, we were all sitting together eating our little hot dogs and hamburgers and onion rings and french fries and all talking about how we could work together from SNCC and SCLC and how we should all be on the same page and moving forward. We said, Dr. King is gone. But you all remember Dr. King and Malcolm X talking about how they could work together. If Dr. King and Malcolm X could talk uh, in terms of forming a coalition to work together on these critical issues, we must do the same. But Rap Brown and Stokely Carmichael and Huey P. Newton, they were the most vocal ones from the radical part of the movement, critical of Dr. King's message of nonviolence. They were very critical before Dr. King was assassinated. And I think some of the young people that SNCC here in Atlanta were beginning to uh, pick up on those messages coming from uh, Stokely and Rapp and Huey P. Newton. And uh, they began to try, to try to mimic at the local level some of the, some of the rhetoric that was that was uh, being espoused by them. Of course, Stokely had been here in Atlanta a few years earlier, uh, out on the west side of, of Atlanta when Mayor Ivan Allen was mayor, and there had been a confrontation uh, out in the, in the community, and uh, and Stokely was kind of popular here. He uh, he had a following here because he stood up on a car and he called Dr. King and Uncle Tom, and he challenged Ivan Allen. And when Mayor Allen went out. Uh, he confronted Mayor Ivan Allen, and uh, it was it was all over the AJC, the Atlanta Journal, and the Constitution at that time. And uh, so Stokely became kind of popular here. He had a he had a following here in the community, low income community, and we knew that what we were hearing in the DNW sandwich shop was basically coming from the the uh, activity of Stokely Carmichael. Did you know who those people, uh, any of those SNCC guys were in the uh, sandwich shop that well, night? Well, I, I, I do remember Willie Ricks and, uh, and uh, the other, let me see, Willie Ricks was there. Uh, I don't know if he remembered or not because Willie Ricks was always very vocal uh, on the west side. He was always very vocal toward SCLC activists for many years. He would call us Uncle Toms and sellouts, and I remember him being there. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the other SNCC workers uh, that uh, that were hanging out with Willie Ricks, um, but I do remember him because he was like the man representing Stokely, he, Stokely Carmichael here in Atlanta. Uh, I don't know if Faye Bellamy was in there or not. I remember meeting Faye later on and she told me she was a part of SNCC and she also told me that, uh, you know, how close she and John Lewis had been and Julian Bond. Uh, but uh, I do recall Willie Ricks being one of those voices, not only there, but he would see us on the street and, you know, he would confront us and it was like he wanted to provoke us. Um, later on, we would meet up at Pascal's and he would walk into Pascal's and he would scream, Black Power, Black Power, and, uh, and Back to Africa. He would just say those things. But as time would pass, Willie Ricks began to gravitate toward me and he would begin to call me 
his African representative. Uh, that's my African representative there. Yeah, he would do that. He, and if he saw me today on the street, he would say, that's my African representative. Let's take a quick break. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Welcome back to the Voices of King, civil rights worker Tyrone Brooks. Let me come back to the sandwich shop. Just mm-hmm. what, was that uh, at, uh, one of the nights between the assassination and the funeral? It was. Uh, we were we were waiting on the uh, the family to decide what the funeral and the scope of the funeral would be. Waiting on Mrs. King and Daddy King and Miss Christine and all of them. Waiting on them. We were just sitting and waiting on the family to decide the scope of what role SCLC would play. Uh, in in the services, so y'all were just going in there to get sandwiches, right? And just ha- and these folks just happened to be in they there, just and, they to be in. and they basically were trying to provoke you. Yeah, but you see, at that time, you have to you have to think back. There were a lot of people in Atlanta who didn't live here. They had come into Atlanta, anticipating uh, uh, the funeral services and anticipating the fact that SCLC was going to be doing something here in Dr. King's hometown. It was a very tense. Feel atmosphere. It was uh, it was a very volatile period. Um, there were so many police officers and FBI agents on the streets. Um, it's hard to describe. But we were out in the community. Jose had basically told us it was our responsibility to be ambassadors of goodwill and to preach nonviolence wherever possible. Because if anything happened in Atlanta, SCLC would be blamed. Where did Jose tell you all this? Was it did he have a, was this at a meeting uh, with some of his folks at SCLC well, headquarters after the after the, the yeah well, he t- he talked about it in Memphis before we left Memphis because after Dr. Abernathy pretty much set the tone for what we were going to be doing uh, after we left Memphis primarily the Poor People's Campaign he said we have to carry through with the Poor People's Campaign because he was say he said Martin and I made this our number one priority after the sanitation worker strike in Memphis. He said, Martin and I made a commitment that we would march on Washington. We would have this Poor People's Campaign on Washington, and we would build Resurrection City from the Washington Monument down to the Lincoln Monument, up and down the mall. And he said, this is what we're going to do. He said, Martin and I made that decision in Marks, Mississippi. When we visited Marks, Mississippi, we made that decision. And he said, this is our number one project. And we want everybody to get ready. So when we get back to Atlanta, we go through the funeral services, we finish with the funeral services, we're going to be on the road, and we're going to organize for the March on Washington. So we come out of Memphis, and you know, most of us who worked on the Hosea, uh, we were in the headquarters on Auburn Avenue. And, and Hosea, every chance he got, he would pull us together, and he would instill in us 
that we have to be ambassadors for nonviolence because he said, if Atlanta burns, SNCC won't be blamed, Cool won't be blamed, it's going to be FCLC. He said, it's our responsibility to protect the image and the legacy of Dr. King by preaching nonviolence. I mean, he, he over and over and over, every chance he got, he would say that to us. And, and he, would, he would get in the car, he would ride with some of us from time to time. We'd walk up and down Auburn Avenue and Hunter Street together. Um, for some reason, Hosea, he had this, this, this love for me that was kind of unusual. He, I was like his son. And uh, he would he would tell me to keep his briefcase, and and he uh, I know Jose being the man he was, he had this huge staff. A lot of the things Jose had to do in terms of rental cars and hotel and expenses, he had to do it in cash. And I would carry his briefcase, which was usually loaded with cash. And uh, he trusted me to do that. He trusted Terry Randolph, his secretary. Terry, if you ever interview her, she would tell you how Jose had to deal with the whole staff. And this, you had staff members in California, New York, Chicago, Miami, uh, Dallas, Houston. Uh, they were all over the country. And Jose was constantly uh, dealing with the staff. I'm talking um, to Terry tomorrow. Good. Well, she can tell you some stories about Hosea being being his secretary and chief administrator. But Hosea, I think, um, more than anybody, uh, beyond Dr. Abernathy, more than anybody, I think he convinced us more than anybody that we had to go out and work the community from the grassroots level to make sure that Atlanta didn't burn. Because he said that would be a tremendous blemish against Dr. King's legacy in his hometown. So who would you go talk to? I mean, you, you, you get this thing in the sandwich shop. Yeah. Where would you go? College campus? Uh, AU oh, yeah. Center? Uh, we, we would walk, we, yes, we would walk through the AU Center. We would walk up and down Auburn Avenue. We would walk through uh, Buttermilk Bottom. We'd walk through Vine City, Summer Hill. We'd walk up and down Capitol Avenue. Uh, over in the West End area of Atlanta, uh, which has now been developed into a whole other neighborhood. Uh, we were all over. We were everywhere. And uh, we would come downtown, right downtown at Five Points here, um, before Woodruff Park, and uh, we would stand on the street corners, and we would have bullhorns, and we would talk about peace and nonviolence, and uh, we would sing freedom songs. A lot of times we would just gather and sing freedom songs. Ain't gonna let nobody turn us around. Ain't gonna let the Ku Klux Klan turn us around. Ain't gonna let violence turn us around. Um, uh, you know, we believe in King. We're gonna follow King. We believe in Abernathy. We're gonna follow Abernathy. I mean, we were out there. And I later discovered that not only were we doing it here in Atlanta a lot, but there were other SCLC chapters and affiliates in other cities doing the same. Uh, we didn't see any value in violence. We didn't see any value in the burning of communities. We didn't see any value in attacking the police. We said it's a self-defeating proposition. If you go out and attack the police, you're going to get hurt or killed. Uh, if you go out and burn the community, you're burning your own community. Uh, if you go out and preach violence, uh, there is no way you can win. So we believed in that, and we were out there as, as ambassadors to keep the peace. But Hosea was drilling us every day. He was talking to us every day. He knew we were hurt. Uh, he knew we were devastated. He was hurt because, you know, he was there in Memphis. He was there, and James Orange was there, Jesse Jackson. Um, Dr. Abernathy maintained his composure 
under those difficult circumstances, and every chance he got, he would talk about it. We were on radio. I remember um, uh, WIGO radio on Auburn Avenue, WERD radio. I remember people like Ben Perry, Ali Pat, who is still on the air today uh, in Atlanta, uh, Ali Pat. I remember Xena uh, uh, Sears, who was... Uh, a very, very involved man over at WAOK Radio, Zena Sears. I remember uh, all of these personalities, D. Robert Scott, uh, WRFG Radio. They were constantly in SCLC's headquarters in Auburn, and they were talking to us and interviewing us, and every chance we got through black radio, we would go on the air and we would appeal to black people across this community uh, to, to remain calm, uh, and to respect the legacy of Dr. King by not resorting to violence uh, and to join SCLC as we prepare for the Poor People's Campaign March on Washington. So black radio was a big part of our message delivery system to get to the community. We would get on the air in the afternoon when the disc jockeys came on the air and, and they called it drive time and we would be on the air with them as they played the James Brown and uh, and and all of the music that uh, young blacks were listening to, the Temptations and uh, the Supremes, um, Aretha Franklin. Uh, that's what black folk were listening to that, that during that era. So we would get on the air during drive time, and the black disc jockeys would give us a chance to talk to the audience, talk to the listening audience out there. What would you like to say, Tyrone? What would you like to say, James? What would you like to say, Willie Bowler? What would you like to say, Carl Ferris, Dorothy Cotton? And we would say, we would like to say that we are part of Dr. King's uh, movement, and we would urge the community to remain strong, remain nonviolent. If you love the legacy of Dr. King, then you would preach love and peace. Uh, he was a man of peace. So we kept saying it over and over. Black radio gave us an opportunity to really talk to the black community, not only here in Atlanta, but across the country. Was there, when you were going out uh, on the streets and going and talking to people and all, did you get the sense that there was a lot of sort of general anger out there that really did need to be yes. uh, dealt with? That was a great deal of anger. It was a great deal of hurt. That was a great deal of... Uh, disappointment, disenchantment. There was a great deal of questions like, questions from the community like, well, where do we go from here? What do we do now? They took the Prince of Peace from us. They killed the peaceful one. Uh, what do we do now? Where do we go? And we had to say, yes, they, they have taken the, the Prince of Peace. They killed the dreamer, but they did not kill the dream. We had to say over and over, they killed the dreamer. But they did not kill the dream. And we have to show America that America, you cannot kill the dream. The dream is too strong to die from, a, from an assassin's bullet. We will carry on to fulfill the dream. That was a great deal of pain. Uh, people were crying. I mean, I would go to visit my mother down in Warrington and she would be crying. Uh, her sisters had come in from, uh, one had come in from New York, one from Philadelphia. Uh, to console her because I was from the family and they knew that I had had wanted to be a part of the movement as a child and they would come in and I would see them sitting in the house crying together with my grandmother there, Ada. Um, talking to young people on the streets, uh, we would just see young children 
weeping on the streets, walking and crying, and we would have to console them. Going over to the AU campus, uh, walking through the dorms, uh, you would see uh, students in little groups talking and weeping and crying and talking about how their parents had called them and urged them to remain calm and to, uh, to just think how much Dr. King gave us in 39 years. <coughs> But it was a very difficult time, and it's, you know, talking in hindsight today, it's hard to relay in words just how serious we saw America exploding. I mean, it's amazing that America didn't explode in a greater proportion than we saw. We did see uh, burnings in Washington and Detroit and Newark and Chicago and Watts. Uh, but there was no major burning in Atlanta, and I think it was because uh, SCLC was based in Atlanta, and I think it was because of the leadership of SCLC, Dr. Abernathy, Jose Williams, and others, uh, who were very much in tune with the community, very much in sync with the community, very much respected in the community. Uh, I think the ability for all of these great leaders to transcend that message of peace and love down to the grassroots helped diffuse the situation in Atlanta. I think Dr. King being from Atlanta and having Daddy King here, Ebenezer here, Reverend William Home Borders up the street from Ebenezer, um, these great giants, uh, Reverend Joe Boone, who was running Operation Breadbasket at that time, before Jesse Jackson. Uh, I think all of the Reverend J.C. Ward, Reverend Fred Bennett, um, uh, uh, Reverend Howard Creasy Sr., um, all of these ministers, Reverend E.H. E. Searcy, E.H. Uh, Dorsey, Reverend Dorsey, all of these men and women that Dr. King had around him became his ambassadors for peace, peace in this community. And he had a strong network of ministers in Atlanta uh, through Operation Bradbass. And they went out, used their churches, used their contacts in their communities, uh, urged their congregations to, to become ambassadors for peace. Uh, that helped to keep Atlanta from exploding on the, on the level of a Newark or Detroit or, or Los Angeles Watts. Uh, it's amazing. But... Uh, it was a very difficult time. We, uh, those of us in the movement, we suspected the FBI and, and, and J. Edgar Hoover being a part of the conspiracy to kill Dr. King. And at the same time, we had to work with the law enforcement community to keep the peace. And before I was told he was dead, and it was in Macon, Georgia, March, March twenty-first, March twenty-third, nineteen sixty-eight. Well, why don't you why don't you tell me about that, and then we'll come back and talk about the funeral and the okay. funeral procession. I'll be very brief on that. It, it just need. I just think. Yeah, I just think it's it's kind of relevant because in nineteen sixty-eight, uh, before Dr. King's assassination, Jose Williams called me, Willie Bowling, Jimmy Wells, Leon Hall, and others to Macon, Georgia, to New Zion Baptist Church. 
Dr. King and Abernathy were traveling the country and they were building up the Poor People's Campaign, but they were still based in Memphis on the sanitation worker strike. So they would break away from Memphis and take off and do these tours around the country. And they were, they were flying on Walter Ruther's plane from the UAW a lot. Walter Ruther would loan them his plane. George Meany from the AFL-CL would loan his plane. So a lot of times they were on these private planes and they could get around more. But Hosea called us to make them to be there at New Zion at this rally that had been organized by Mr. Bill Randall Sr. We called him Daddy Randall on Randall's funeral home there. Well, anyway, we go into Macon and Dr. Abernathy introduced Dr. King. It was the middle of the week. It was, I think it was a Wednesday, uh, midday service. Introduced King. King speaks. Uh, after Dr. King's speech, we sat in the back of the church and we had some fried chicken and collard greens and iced tea and uh, Hosea said, well, give Dr. King and Dr. Abernath a briefing on your project in Walton County. But Willie Boland started off with the first report about the project in Social Circle. And I remember before the meeting ended, Mr. Dan Young came over from Monroe and uh, we started talking about the Moore's Ford Bridge lynching case. And Dr. King said, uh, well, Ralph and I are very familiar with that. He said, by the way, Dan Young is one of my best friends. I go to his farm in Social Circle a lot to relax. He said, as soon as Ralph and I finish in Memphis with the sanitation worker strike, we will come to Walton County to help you with your immediate assignment. But we would also focus on the lynchings at the Moores Ford Bridge. And Mr. Young started clapping because he, he really wanted Dr. King to take the lead on solving the lynching case. So that was March 23rd, 1968 at New Zion Baptist Church. Less than two weeks, Dr. King was assassinated, so he never had a chance to come. Now, Dr. Abernathy did come later. He came in 1982. We had Jose Williams. We've had Dr. Joe Lowry. We've had Jesse Jackson, James Orange, Charles Steele. So all of the SCLC leaders have come to help us with this lynching case since that time, and we're still working on this lynching case today as we speak. We will march on, on April 4th to commemorate the 40th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. John, Congressman John Lewis will lead that march. March 12 noon from First African Baptist Church, our meeting church where we always rallied in Monroe. And then on July 25th, we will conduct uh, the annual reenactment of the lynches to call attention to this unsolved lynching case, but also demand the arrest and prosecution of the killers who are still living. The reason we do this, the reason we work on this case so intensely is because this was on Dr. King's assignment sheet. He wanted to come to give leadership to solving this case, but he was taken away from us. Abernathy came and the rest of them came, but we are still living and we say as long as we live, it is our responsibility to continue this mission and, and, and contribute to Dr. King's legacy by solving this case. Uh, I had to tell you that. Uh, I last saw Dr. King alive just two weeks before his assassination in Macon, Georgia at New Zion Baptist Church. That was my last time seeing him alive. Uh, but as it relates to the funeral services here in Atlanta, the SCLC veterans, the field staff, uh, working under the leadership of Hosea Williams, uh, Hosea would constantly brief us on what he was picking up from Daddy King, because he was talking to Daddy King a lot. And basically, Jose said uh, there would be no official role uh, at Ebenezer for us, but that when the funeral services ended in the church, we would escort Dr. King's body by mule and wagon across town to the AU campus. And Dr. Benny Mays would preach the eulogy 
That was already decided. We knew that much. But there was really no official role for us in the service itself. Most of us who were working for SCLC uh, were on the outside of the church. The church is very small, as you know. So most of the, the, the participants inside the church were family. They were, you know, the, the, the high-profile elected officials from around the country, all of the civil rights leaders who were uh, partners with King and Abernathy. Dr. Abernathy was there, of course, inside. But the field staff, those who worked on the Hosea Williams, we basically were outside of Ebenezer that day. Now, we could hear the services on loudspeakers, but we were not in the church. We were wearing the overalls uh, and prepared as soon as Hosea had made it plain, he told Daddy King, as soon as the service is over, we're going to put the casket on the mules and wagons, and we're going to march across town with Dr. King's body. Now, that, Jose told us there was some resistance from Daddy King. He said Daddy King wasn't too pleased with that. He didn't want that. But Jose said, listen, this is what's going to happen, and this is from the movement. This is from those who were on the ground with Dr. King, those who had been marching with him across America, going to jail with him, getting beat up, tear gas in, in all these dungeons across the country, risking their lives. He said, this is what we're going to do. This is, this is what we will do. This is the role we will play. But Hosea talked to me many times after the services, and he told me, he said, Daddy King didn't like that. But he said he insisted that this is this is going to happen. He didn't say Mrs. King had any objection. He said Daddy King had objections to us taking the body and putting it on mule and wagon and going across town. So that's what we did. That was our role. We you would look at the photos and you'll see us marching with the mule and wagon across across town with Dr. King's body. What what was Daddy King's objection to the to the cart and the the mule drawn cart? Well, Hosea, you know. We would talk. Um, we spent an awful lot of time together. I, it's amazing how much time I spent with Jose Williams throughout the years. Jose told me that <clears throat> it was it was a part of Daddy King's philosophy that you didn't need to over uh, over movement his son. His son is his son. His son is a preacher. And we're taking we're taking him too much into the movement, and he's gone on the glory. And Jose said, "But, but he's our symbol of the movement." And, and so he and Daddy King would have these arguments, and they would clash a lot. Uh, but Jose told me that it goes back to Daddy King's conservative philosophy. He said Daddy King's conservative philosophy forced his son to leave Atlanta and go to Montgomery. Uh, Daddy King's conservative philosophy clashed with. Dr. King's uh, uh, movement to take the movement from beyond just domestic civil rights into international affairs such as Vietnam and the war in Southeast Asia and uh, into South Africa and began to, to deal with issues beyond what is traditional civil rights. So Jose said to me, he said, that was just the way Daddy King was. He said uh, we, we, we had a lot of problem with him. And Do Jose also said that he and A.D., Dr. King's brother, uh, together sometimes would meet with Daddy King and try to get Daddy King to understand that this was a new day and that whether he liked it or not, there were certain things that had to happen going forward, whether, whether he could participate in or not, but that he and A.D. were together on them and that he might as well adjust. I remember one day 
uh, Jose and I were at the, the Dr. King's grave site, and this was before the whole King Center was, was constructed as it is today. We were getting ready to have a march from Atlanta to Columbus. One of our volunteers had committed suicide in front of Dr. Abernathy's old church, the old West Hunter Street Baptist Church. It was at Hunter Street and Chestnut then, now it's uh, Martin Luther King and Brawley. But one of our volunteers, his name was um, uh, Willie B. Phillips, and Terry Randolph can talk about this. You'd ask Terry about this too, because we were using the old West Hunter to have Saturday morning rallies. And this young man was emotionally torn apart. He'd been to Vietnam and come back. And um, they said he had had some traumatizing moments in Vietnam, and he'd come back, and they, they used the word shell-shocked. That was a common word to be used in those days. Well, he, this guy was standing on the streets in front of the Old West Hunter. Marshall Brown was having his homecoming. And all of a sudden, we see this big ball of fire in front of the church. And what had happened was, Willie B. Phillips had gone up to Cooper's Gulf Service Station, right across from Pascos, bought a can of gasoline, and he walked back down the street and he drenched himself in gas. Yes, and he lit a match, and he boom, just went up like a big pew. Well, Julian Bond's brother, James Bond, had a camera, and he was filming the Marsh Brown Parade coming down the street, and all of a sudden, he saw this fire. So, so James Bond, he put the camera on the fire. It was a man burning up. But James Bond didn't know that. He was just filming it. And later on, we told James, we said, that's a man burning. He said, oh, my God. Well, he's got it. I hope he saved that film. But we decided to take Mr. Phillips' body back to Columbus, Georgia. So Hosea got a mule and wagon. We go up to Dr. King's gravesite on Auburn. And Daddy King comes out, he sees us, and he tells Jose, Jose, I told you I don't want that mess up here anymore. You got to stop bringing that mess over here. And Jose this, Jose that. Jose said, Daddy King, listen, calm down. We are carrying on the legacy of your son. You may not understand all that we do. You may think we're crazy. But this is a young man who committed suicide in front of Ralph's church. He said, Ralph, didn't say Dr. Abernathy. And we're taking his body back to Columbus for the funeral. Now, Daddy King, you may not want to go with us, but we're going. And Daddy King threatened to call the police. And Jose said, call the police. Daddy King, I don't care. I've been to jail everywhere in America. I'll go to jail right here at, at, at Dr. King's gravesite. He said, this is what Dr. King wants us to do. Ted Randolph should remember this. So Daddy King got angry. He turned around. He walked in the Ebenezer and closed the door. He didn't say anything. But uh, we walked on out. From Dr. King's gravesite, we marched on down the road, we had police escort, and we took this man's body all the way back to Columbus. Well, I remember we went the back way into Columbus. We stopped uh, down in Noonan, Palmetto, and all them little towns, and we were going to have a rally at a black church, and the black folks closed the doors on us. They wouldn't let us use the church. But a white minister came up to us, and he said, Reverend Williams, you can use our church tonight. You can sleep over. We would go out and we would bring you food. So this big white Methodist church mm -hmm. down here near Palmetto somewhere, they came and got us and took us over. And the next day we took off and went on over to Manchester, Green Greenville, Manchester, Woodland, and on into Columbus. Although he spent an entire career in public service as an activist and in Georgia House of Representatives from the 55th District, Brooks was sentenced in 2015 on tax, mail, and wire fraud. 
In the next episode of The Voices of King, we will hear from Dr. King's older sister, Christine King-Ferris. A special thanks to AJC reporters Rosalind Bentley and Ernie Suggs. Also to Senior Editor of Visuals, Sandra Brown. Senior Managing Editors, Monica Richardson and Mark Wallagor. And our Editor-in-Chief, Kevin Raleigh. Be sure to visit www.ajc.com backslash MLK50 for the AJC's coverage of honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Ryan Horn, and you've been listening to The Voices of King. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.